Chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 of Commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eric Longman. Commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians by Martin Luther. Translated by Theodore Grebner. Chapter 5. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul presents the doctrine of Christian liberty in a final effort to persuade the Galatians to give up the nefarious doctrine of the false apostles. To accomplish this purpose, he adduces threats and promises, trying in every way possible to keep them in the liberty which Christ purchased for them. Verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Be steadfast, not careless. Lie not down and sleep, but stand up. Be watchful. Hold fast the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free. Those who loll cannot keep this liberty. Satan hates the light of the gospel. When it begins to shine a little, he fights against it with might and main. What liberty does Paul mean? Not civil liberty, for which we have the government to thank, but the liberty which Christ has procured for us. At one time the emperor was compelled to grant to the bishop of Rome certain immunities and privileges. This is civil liberty. That liberty exempts the clergy from certain public charges. Then there is also another kind of liberty, when people obey neither the laws of God nor the laws of men, but do as they please this carnal liberty the people want in our day. We are not now speaking of this liberty. Neither are we speaking of civil liberty. Paul is speaking of a far better liberty, the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, not from material bonds, not from the Babylonian captivity, not from the tyranny of the Turks, but from the eternal wrath of God. Where is this liberty? In the conscience. Our conscience is free and quiet because it no longer has to fear the wrath of God. This is real liberty, compared with which every other kind of liberty is not worth mentioning. Who can adequately express the boon that comes to a person when he has the heart assurance that God will never more be angry with him, but will forever be merciful to him for Christ's sake? This is indeed a marvelous liberty, to have the sovereign God for our friend and father, who will defend, maintain, and save us in this life and in the life to come. As an outgrowth of this liberty, we are at the same time free from the law, sin, death, the power of the devil, hell, etc. Since the wrath of God has been assuaged by Christ, no law, sin, or death may now accuse and condemn us. These foes of ours will continue to frighten us, but not too much. The worth of our Christian liberty cannot be exaggerated. Our conscience must be trained to fall back on the freedom purchased for us by Christ. Though the fears of the law, the terrors of sin, the horror of death assail us occasionally, we know that these feelings shall not endure, because the prophet quotes God as saying, In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee. Isaiah 54, 8. We shall appreciate this liberty all the more when we bear in mind that it was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who purchased it with his own blood. Hence, 
Christ's liberty is given us not by the law or for our own righteousness, but freely for Christ's sake. In the eighth chapter of the Gospel of St. John, Jesus declares, If the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. He only stands between us and the evils which trouble and afflict us, and which he has overcome for us. Reason cannot properly evaluate this gift. Who can fully appreciate the blessing of the forgiveness of sins and of everlasting life? Our opponents claim that they also possess this liberty, but they do not. When they are put to the test, all their self-confidence slips from them. What else can they expect when they trust in works and not in the word of God? Our liberty is founded on Christ himself, who sits at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Therefore our liberty is sure and valid as long as we believe in Christ. As long as we cling to him with a steadfast faith, we possess his priceless gifts. But if we are careless and indifferent, we shall lose them. It is not without good reason that Paul urges us to watch and stand fast. He knew that the devil delights in taking this liberty away from us. Verse 1. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Because reason prefers the righteousness of the law to the righteousness of faith, Paul calls the law a yoke, a yoke of bondage. Peter also calls it a yoke. Why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Acts 15.10 In this passage, Paul again disparages the pernicious notion that the law is able to make men righteous before God, a notion deeply rooted in man's reason. All mankind is so wrapped up in this idea that it is hard to drag it out of people. Paul compares those who seek to be justified by the law to oxen that are hitched to the yoke. Like oxen that toil in the yoke all day, and in the evening are turned out to graze along the dusty road, and at last are marked for slaughter when they no longer can draw the burden. So those who seek to be justified by the law are entangled with the yoke of bondage. And when they have grown old and broken down in the service of the law they have earned for their perpetual reward, God's wrath and everlasting torment. We are not now treating of an unimportant matter. It is a matter that involves everlasting liberty or everlasting slavery. For as a liberation from God's wrath through the kind of office of Christ is not a passing boon, but a permanent blessing, so also the yoke of the law is not a temporary but an everlasting affliction. Rightly are the doers of the law called devil's martyrs, they take more pains to earn hell than the martyrs of Christ to obtain heaven. Theirs is a double misfortune. First, they torture themselves on earth with self-inflicted penances, and finally, when they die, they gain the reward of eternal damnation. Verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say to you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Paul is incensed at the thought of the tyranny of the law. His antagonism to the law is a personal matter with him. Behold, I, Paul, he says, I who have received the gospel not from men but by the revelation of Jesus Christ, I who have been commissioned from above to preach the gospel to you, I, Paul, say to you, if you submit to circumcision, Christ will profit you nothing. 
Paul emphatically declares that for the Galatians to be circumcised would mean for them to lose the benefits of Christ's suffering and death. This passage may well serve as a criterion for all the religions, to teach that besides faith in Christ other devices like works or the observance of rules, traditions, or ceremonies are necessary for the attainment of righteousness and everlasting life, is to make Christ and his salvation of no benefit to anybody. This passage is an indictment of the whole papacy. All priests, monks, and nuns, and I am now speaking of the best of them, who repose their hope for salvation in their own works, and not in Christ, whom they imagine to be an angry judge, hear this sentence pronounced against them that Christ shall profit them nothing. If one can earn the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life through one's own efforts, to what purpose was Christ born? What was the purpose of his suffering and death, his resurrection, his victory over sin, death, and the devil, if men may overcome these evils by their own endeavor? Tongue cannot express nor heart conceive what a terrible thing it is to make Christ worthless. The person who is not moved by these considerations to leave the law and the confidence in his own righteousness for the liberty in Christ has a heart that is harder than stone and iron. Paul does not condemn circumcision in itself. Circumcision is not injurious to the person who does not ascribe any particular importance to it. Neither are works injurious, provided a person does not attach any saving value to them. The Apostle does not say that works are objectionable. But to build one's hopes for righteousness on works is disastrous, for that makes Christ good for nothing. Let us bear this in mind when the devil accuses our conscience, when that dragon accuses us of having done no good at all but only evil. Say to him, You trouble me with the remembrance of my past sins. You remind me that I have done no good. But this does not bother me. Because if I were to trust in my own good deeds, or despair because I have done no good deeds, Christ would profit me neither way. I am not going to make him unprofitable to me. This I would do, if I should presume to purchase for myself the favor of God and everlasting life by my good deeds, or if I should despair of my salvation because of my sins. Verse 3 for I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. The first fault with circumcision is that it makes Christ unprofitable. The second fault is that it obligates those who are circumcised to observe the whole law. Paul is so very much in earnest about this matter that he confirms it with an oath. I testify, he says, I swear by the living God. Paul's statement may be explained negatively to mean, I testify to every man who is being circumcised that he cannot perform the law in any point. In the very act of circumcision he is not being circumcised, and in the very act of fulfilling the law he fulfills it not. This seems to be the simple meaning of Paul's statement. Later on in the sixth chapter he explicitly states, They themselves which are circumcised keep not the law. The fact that you are circumcised does not mean you are righteous and free from the law. The truth is that by circumcision you have become debtors and servants of the law. The more you endeavor to perform the law, the more you will become tangled up in the yoke of the law. The truth of this I have experienced in myself and in others. I have seen many work themselves down to the bones in their hungry effort to obtain peace of conscience. 
but the harder they tried, the more they worried. Especially in the presence of death they were so uneasy that I have seen murderers die with better grace and courage. This holds true also in regard to the church regulations. When I was a monk, I tried ever so hard to live up to the strict rules of my order. I used to make a list of my sins, and I was always on the way to confession, and whatever penances were enjoined upon me I performed religiously. In spite of it all, my conscience was always in a fever of doubt. The more I sought to help my poor stricken conscience, the worse it got. The more I paid attention to the regulations, the more I transgressed them. Hence, those that seek to be justified by the law are much further away from the righteousness of life than the publicans, sinners, and harlots. They know better than to trust in their own works. They know that they cannot ever hope to obtain forgiveness by their sins. Paul's statement in this verse may be taken to mean that those who submit to circumcision are thereby submitting to the whole law. To obey Moses in one point requires obedience to him in all points. It does no good to say that only circumcision is necessary and not the rest of Moses' laws. The same reasons that obligate a person to accept circumcision also obligate a person to accept the whole law. Thus, to acknowledge the law is tantamount to declaring that Christ is not yet come. And if Christ is not yet come, then all the Jewish ceremonies and laws concerning meats, places, and times are still in force, and Christ must be awaited as one who is still to come. The whole scripture, however, testifies that Christ has come, that by his death he has abolished the law, and that he has fulfilled all things which the prophets have foretold about him. Some would like to subjugate us to certain parts of the Mosaic law, but this is not to be permitted under any circumstances. If we permit Moses to rule over us in one thing, we must obey him in all things. Verse 4. Christ is become of no effect to you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Paul, in this verse, discloses that he's not speaking so much of circumcision as the trust which men repose in the outward act. We can hear him say, I do not condemn the law in itself. What I condemn is that men seek to be justified by the law as if Christ were still to come, or as if he alone were unable to justify sinners. It is this that I condemn, because it makes Christ of no effect. It makes you void of Christ, so that Christ is not in you, nor can you be partakers of the knowledge, the spirit, the fellowship, the liberty, the life, or the achievements of Christ. You are completely separated from him, so much so that he has nothing to do with you any more, or for that matter, you with him. Can anything worse be said against the law? If you think Christ and the law can dwell together in your heart, you can be sure that Christ dwells not in your heart. For if Christ is in your heart, he neither condemns you, nor does he ever bid you to trust in your own good works. If you know Christ at all, you know that good works do not serve unto righteousness, nor evil works unto condemnation. I do not want to withhold from good works their due praise, nor do I wish to encourage evil works. But when it comes to justification, I say, we must concentrate upon Christ alone or else we make him non-effective. You must choose between Christ and the righteousness of the law. If you choose Christ, you are righteous before God. If you stick to the law, Christ is of no use to you. 
Verse 4, ye are fallen from grace. That means you're no longer in the kingdom or in the condition of grace. When a person on board ship falls into the sea and is drowned, it makes no difference from which end or side of the ship he falls into the water. Those who fall from grace perish no matter how they go about it. Those who seek to be justified by the law are fallen from grace and are in grave danger of eternal death. If this holds true in the case of those who seek to be justified by the moral law, what will become of those, I should like to know, who endeavor to be justified by their own regulations and vows? They will fall to the very bottom of hell. Oh no, they say, we will fly straight into heaven. If you live according to the rules of St. Francis, St. Dominic, St. Benedict, you will obtain the peace and mercy of God. If you perform the vows of chastity, obedience, etc., you will be rewarded with everlasting life. Let these playthings of the devil go to the place where they came from, and listen to what Paul has to say in this verse, in accordance with Christ's own teaching. He that believeth in the Son of God hath everlasting life. But he that believeth not in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth in him. The words, ye are fallen from grace, must not be taken lightly. They are important. To fall from grace means to lose the atonement, the forgiveness of sins, the righteousness, liberty, and life which Jesus has merited for us by his death and resurrection. To lose the grace of God means to gain the wrath and judgment of God, death, the bondage of the devil, and everlasting condemnation. Verse 5. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Paul concludes the whole matter with the above statement. You want to be justified by the law, by circumcision, and by works. We cannot see it. To be justified by such means would make Christ of no value to us. We would be obliged to perform the whole law, we, rather through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness. The Apostle is not satisfied to say, justified by faith. He adds, hope to faith. Holy Writ speaks of hope in two ways, as the object of the emotion, and hope as the emotion itself. In the first chapter of the Epistle to the Colossians, we have an instance of its first use, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven i.e., the thing hoped for. In the sense of emotion, we quote the passage from the 8th chapter of the Epistle to the Romans, for we are saved by hope. As Paul uses the term hope here in writing to the Galatians, we may take it in either of its two meanings. We may understand Paul to say, we wait in spirit through faith for the righteousness that we hope for, which in due time will be revealed to us, or we may understand Paul to say, we wait in spirit, by faith, for righteousness with great hope and desire. True, we are righteous, but our righteousness is not yet revealed. As long as we live here, sin stays with us, not to forget the law in our members striving against the law of our mind. When sin rages in our body, and we through the spirit wrestle against it, then we have cause for hope. We are not yet perfectly righteous. Perfect righteousness is yet to be attained. Hence, we hope for it. This is sweet comfort for us, and we are to make use of it in comforting the afflicted. We are to say to them, Brother, you would like to feel God's favor as you feel your sin, but you're asking too much. 
Your righteousness rests on something much better than feelings. Wait and hope until it will be revealed to you in the Lord's own time. Don't go by your feelings, but go by the doctrine of faith which pledges Christ to you. The question occurs to us, what difference is there between faith and hope? We find it difficult to see any difference. Faith and hope are so closely linked that they cannot be separated. Still, there is a difference between them. First, hope and faith differ in regard to their sources. Faith originates in the understanding, while hope arises in the will. Second, they differ in their regard to their functions. Faith says what is to be done. Faith teaches, describes, directs. Hope exerts the mind to be strong and courageous. Thirdly, they differ in regard to their objectives. Faith concentrates on the truth. Hope looks to the goodness of God. Fourthly, they differ in sequence. Faith is the beginning of life before tribulation, from Hebrews 11. Hope comes later and is born of tribulation, Romans 5. Fifthly, they differ in regard to their effects. Faith is a judge. It judges errors. Hope is a soldier. It fights against tribulations, the cross, despondency, despair, and waits for better things to come in the midst of evil. Without hope, faith cannot endure. On the other hand, hope without faith is blind rashness and arrogance because it lacks knowledge. Before anything else, a Christian must have the insight of faith so that the intellect may know its directions in the day of trouble, and the heart may hope for better things. By faith we begin, by hope we continue. This passage contains excellent doctrine and much comfort. It declares that we are justified not by works, sacrifices, or ceremonies, but by Christ alone. The world may judge certain things to be ever so good. Without Christ they are all wrong. Circumcision and the law and good works are carnal. We, says Paul, are above such things. We possess Christ by faith, and in the midst of our afflictions we hopefully wait for the consummation of our righteousness. You may say, the trouble is, I don't feel as if I am righteous. You must not feel, but believe. Unless you believe that you are righteous, you do Christ a great wrong. For he has cleansed you by the washing of regeneration. He died for you, so that through him you may obtain righteousness and everlasting life. End of chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 of Commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians. Recording by Eric Longman, Marietta, Georgia.